0: I've had the privilege of doing some traveling since I got sober. I've been quite a few places. I've never, ever been to a place like this. <laughs> I've been a lot of places you walk in there and you feel like you're walking to a funeral parlor. And <laughs> where's a dead body at around here? And that's the attraction they want to offer you. This is fantastic coming here and sharing with you. I'm getting more out of this than um, I'll ever be able to get back to you. My sobriety date to the grace of God, not an Anonymous. Anonymous, uh, a very kind, loving sponsor's concerned with saving my life and not my feelings. <laughs> and a lot of help from a lot of people like you. It's March 12, 1966. So I'm in my sober year. I'm in my 25th year of Alcoholics Anonymous being sober. I'm also a retread. It's my second time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here two years, two years prior to this before I had my last drink. I'm 49 years of age, so almost half of my entire life has been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that does not make me an authority on Alcoholics Anonymous. It does not make me an authority on alcoholism. It just means I haven't had a drink in over 24 years a day at a time. And I've had a lot of experiences. And I'm, very, I'm convinced that it's easy to stay sober when it's easy. <laughs> but it ain't always going to be easy. No one promised me a rose garden. No one said you'd come in here and have the ever after and never have to deal with life's problems. I found out that this program will meet me at the level of my needs. This program has never failed me. And I've never taken a sabbatical from Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always came here. And I thank God AA was here when I came here. I thank God, I thank God that I was able to come back to alcoholics Anonymous after going out and getting drunk and coming back two years later. So of reminds me of a story of my, my little girl. I got sober. She was three and a half years of age. She's now 27, going to 28. And she turned six years of age and started the first grade of school. And she went to school her first day. Came home, I said, Dawn, how'd you make out in school today? She said, not too good, Dad. i got to go back again tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> AA is the same way. We come here, we don't do good some days. we got to go back again tomorrow. We take it a day at a time. I, I just love all this signs and slogans on the wall. I like the one about one day at a time. I've never seen a slogan like two days at a time or... It's just so exciting. reminds me I was in a I guarantee you I promise you. <laughs> we will be approximately one hour. We got a dance coming up at ten o'clock and it reminds me when I was one of my uh, after I came to AA I went back to drinking and um there was no detox and no treatment centers around, and when you got drunk and you really flipped out dead, in my area, they just put you into a nut house, a dooney roost or a funny farm, whatever you want to call it, a state mental institution, a locked facility, where they take away your shoestrings and your belt. You don't want to damage yourself, and you don't you're, you're eat with a great big soup spoon, and everything is locked. And I remember I ended up in one of these places for about six weeks one time. And they tried a lot of things. We made them little leather wallets and little ceramic ashtrays for therapy. And finally someone said, why don't we try dancing? We'll use dancing for therapy. They took all them crazy women from one ward and us crazy guys from another ward, put us in a room, and they had a, a Victrola and record, and they played this music. And right before I'd end up in that institution, I slipped out. and ran my sister a bunch of windows, I tried to put my head through a concrete porch, and it was all bandaged up. My wrists were all taped up. And I love to dance. I'm not a bad dancer. And I said, well, you know, I'll dance. And I saw a nice-looking woman there, and I said, would you care to dance? She said, yes. And I'm out there dancing with her. We're having a nice time. and She said, you tried to kill yourself, didn't you? I said, no. She said, yes, you did. Look at your wrists, and they're all taped up and all. I said, no, I didn't try to kill myself. I said, what are you in here for? She said, I killed my husband. I said, damn, I gotta get me a new dance partner right now. <laughs> so I guarantee you we'll wrap this thing up so we can go dance at 10 o'clock. I didn't set out to be an alcoholic and I, I was uh, listening to the speaker earlier today and, and I too came from a family there. I was one of seven children. There's no alcoholism in my entire family. I'm the middle child. My mother's 73 years of age. I've never seen her take a drink in her entire life. My father's 78 and maybe he's had a half a dozen drinks. I've not seen any alcoholism or drug addiction either any of my brothers and sisters. I've got two children. I've got a son who'll be 32 years of age in July. A daughter who's gonna be twenty-eight. I got a grandson who's gonna be fourteen in June. And um, I've never seen any so far at this point has any drink or drug problems. So when I took the drinking, I don't know whether I tried to make up for the whole damn family what happened. <laughs> But I loved it, and, and I identify with all the other speakers. I drank for effect. I thought the world looked better through rose-colored glasses. I was a weird, flaky, mixed-up kid before I ever took my first drink. If it not had been, you know, back in those days, there was very little drugs. If it had been drugs, it would have been drugs. It would have been anything to make life more pleasant to deal with. I just felt like I never fit in. I never belonged. I come in here and I feel like I fit in. I belong in alcoholics anonymous. I never felt comfortable. Nowhere in my life until I came to AA. Now, I, I, I know there's a lot of different programs around, and, and then there's a big word in treatment now. They talk about dysfunctional. I spoke one night and they said, you came from a dysfunctional home. I said, my whole damn neighborhood was dysfunctional. <laughs> Cats, dogs, everything is dysfunctional. It wasn't really dysfunctional when I came along, I think. But I was just a crazy kid. And I think you've got to drink to be an alcoholic. You can have all kinds of feelings and symptoms and everything else. There's two things I'm convinced. Number one, you've got to drink it to become an alcoholic. And number two, you've got to stop to get sober. And it's just that simple. You know? Now, I'll tell you what. I didn't have my first drink until by today's standards a little bit late in life. I was only 15 years of age had my first drink in the back seat of a 1949 Mercury. And I'm going to a party. And they put me in the back because I was the smallest and youngest guy in the crowd. I always wanted to set up in the front right-hand seat so I could lay my arm over the window if I had a muscle or something. You know what I mean? And talk to the girls. But they put me in the back, and they put in the back with me two bottles of Madeira Port wine. And that bottle of wine, each bottle cost 72 cents. Now, that's a long time ago. I never forgot that because I got more out of that 72 cents than I ever got out of any Kool-Aid or Pepsi-Cola or iced tea in my entire life. And I wasn't used to drinking. And I sat back down i said, well, I might as well do something before we get to the party. I'm going to start drinking. So I started drinking. And it was sweet. And next thing you know, I'm drunk. I mean, I got so drunk. I went to this party. They, they, they told me things I said I couldn't remember I said, things I did I couldn't remember I did. I remember one time I got sick. It was it, We were in a country, like a, a home out in the country. I remember I leaned out the window to throw up, and thank God I was only on the second floor. I fell out the window. <laughs> I landed on a big pile of gravel, otherwise I probably would have broke my damn neck. I experienced a blackout. I got sick the next day, and yet I found something in that bottle I couldn't find in life and I went back to drink every chance I could. I became a daily drinker by the time I was 15 years of age. And that's tough to do in a the family, there's no drinking period. You guys talk about hiding the bottle, trying to hide a drunk. <laughs> My parents had a real live drunk on their hands, they didn't know what to do with it. And it was embarrassing. And again, we were middle, middle, upper class people. Nice family. My father's big thing was to give us an education. And I just turned out to be like Peck's Bad Boy. And when I started drinking, I didn't get drunk every day, but I drank almost every day. I had plenty of access to alcohol. Kids I ran around with. One of the guys his, his parents in a bar. And we used to go in there and we would take one bottle of beer out of each case and make our own case of mixed beer. And we drank anything. It didn't matter to me. I drank anything as long as it would do the trick. It would make me feel good. I always felt inadequate. I always felt insecure. I felt like I just couldn't get it together. And when I started drinking, man, it all came together. Now, I got married when I was 17 years of age. And most people get married when they're 17. That's one or two reasons. You're crazy or pregnant. And we a little bit of both. I got married April 25th, had a son born July of 20th, a little less than three months later. And I told everybody he was born premature, six months. He weighed almost eight pounds. So, so I found myself, you know, and that's kind of a situation, dropping out of high school, you know, had to drop out of high school, go get two jobs. And I was drinking at that time, getting into a lot of trouble. I don't know. My drinking just accelerated. I hear guys that uh, they, they drug this thing out for a long time. It's sort of like they started drinking on that side of the room, and they had to get to that side, which is AA, maybe. And they just took their time going across that room. I ran across the room. And I just, I went for it with everything. AA says, you know, live one day at a time or gust pill. I mean, hell, I drank that away. I just didn't leave no trick unturned. I just drank anything, anytime, anywhere, and I just drank as much as I could drink. And I get on different kicks. It might be wine. It might be beer. It might be whiskey. And, and also, I got big when I drank. A lot of guys got real small and skinny when they drank. I got, I up like a big frog. I was six foot two. I weighed about 265 pounds. I had like a 19 and a half inch, 20 inch neck. Right big and all puffed up like a big old blue frog. You know what I mean? And I drank so much beer sometimes. You ever drink so much beer, you can't swallow no more? <laughs> and you're standing there. You don't want to spit it out, no. And just wait around, pretty soon it'll go down. And because you get you drink so much like that, you gain a lot of weight. And because you're so fat, you get chapped. Your, your skin rubs together. You get chapped under your arms. You chapped in the crease of your leg. And, and I lived in a house where there was no air conditioning in the hot summer and the temperature's 100 degrees and you're sweating, and you're chapped, and you're drunk. I go up and lay in a bedroom, on the bed, take all my clothes off, put some cornstarch in between my legs in here. Look like a big old whale beach up there somewhere. The and you think you're cool. bite my nails down, nerves are bad. I'd chew my nails down, then I'd start I couldn't I was too fat to get my feet in my mouth. So I'd start picking on my toes. And then my toenails were getting extracted from ingrown toenails. And they get sore and you stand down on a beach with a 43 inch waist trying to look cool with sore toes. <laughs> you bury your toes in the sand. You get in an elevator, some guy steps on your toes. They stink. One of the first things I did when I got sober I got my toes fixed. Now man, I go around, I kick things, you know what I mean? Good feeling. <laughs> you get booze bumps, vitamin deficiency. I got so, I, I used to talk like this all the time. My sponsor said, get your hand out of your mouth, we can't hear you. I said, I'm ashamed of my teeth, half my teeth are knocked out. He said, save your money, get some new pearls. I saved my money, got some new teeth, don't have to put my hand in my mouth. I, I used to stutter a lot. When I came there he had a speech and I used to stutter a lot. And I just found by talking fast it doesn't happen. It's just something naturally I just do it. I just talk fast and it doesn't happen. You just have to try to listen fast or some place you some places you go down south where you talk real slow. <laughs> guys like me from the north I'm down here, they tape us in 45 and play us back in 33 and 30 and see what the hell we said. <laughs> yeah? But be careful guys that talk fast because they think fast. First time I was asked to go speak somewhere, words, I told my sponsor, "I said I don't know why they asked me to speak. I said I'm no public speaker." He said, "They didn't invite you because you're a public speaker. They invite you because you're a public drunk." <laughs> <laughs> right? Aa's the message of the heart. And I You know what it is? We feel things. I feel a message when I go to a room. I mean, you can't dazzle me with a whole lot of intellectual vocabulary or something like that. I feel sincerity. I feel God when He tells me something. I can walk through it with him if he's telling me from his heart. I learn how to cheat when you speak, when you go to place and speak, you, you learn how to cheat. You know how you cheat? You pray. Yes, God just to use you as an instrument to say something that may have someone out there. There's like we said over nine hundred and forty five people here tonight. Maybe there's a reason I'm here just because there's one person who needs to share and hear part of my story out there. And the other thing is I've got to hear it for me to remember to remember to remind myself where I came from. He forget where he comes from as soon as return to it. And so when I stand up and share, I don't know what's going to come out. I'm just as curious about you what's going to be said here tonight. It always comes out different. Back where I live, there's no speaker meetings. We had just nothing but discussion meetings. And so when I get a chance to go out and speak like this, I don't know what's going to come out. I've only got one story, but it just comes out differently. It depends where I'm at that day in my life. Anyway, I started drinking. Ready to get married when I'm seventeen. The following year we have another child. That child lived three months and died. And I had experienced that. And and what I'm saying and, and the things I share is the fact that as long as you can look out there and blame other people, places, and things, you don't have to look in here. Well, if your kid died, wouldn't you drink? If you got married when you were seventeen, wouldn't you drink? You had all this responsibility, wouldn't you drink? If you felt like you were the black sheep of the family, wouldn't you drink? All this pressure. I couldn't get a decent job. I was working on the waterfront. I was working in a factory as a, as a, as a, as a working a box factory. I was working a stevedore and got involved in longshoremen and running some hot fences and running numbers and loan sharking and you name it. Well, when I drink, I'm an action drinker. There's different types of drinkers, but I love action. I was a barroom drinker. I love the gambling in the barroom I love the fighting the arguing, the bullcrapping, dancing with the girls. I could name you when I, I remember one time I went to my first day meeting I could name you every bar from that meeting to my house. I could tell you the barmaid's name, private measurements I could tell you songs on the jukebox. I could tell you about the pool tables and shuffle boards and dart boards. I could tell you about the dance floor, what they had on tap. I couldn't name no donut shops. I couldn't name no banks. I couldn't, I, all I was thinking, drinking. Always thinking, drinking. And so I ended up being, being a, a drinker and, I, and then my, my daughter died and I used to, used to drink. I would go out because I hung in bar rooms. I liked a lot of the action. I was always getting into trouble. I remember when I was in a bar with another guy and um we were trying to make it with these two girls, but they had guys with them. <laughs> and these guys come over, and we were drunk, and we were mouthy, and we were telling these girls what we thought of these two guys they were with. And these guys came over, and they flipped a the wild open and said, Look, uh, we're police officers. We suggest you go ahead and, leave, and get out of here right now. Well, they had clothes and one like me. I said, Hell, I know a lot of guys got those things. I think you go to a trade shop or somewhere and you buy one, a pawn shop or something. He said, no, we're police officers. We're Well, anyway, a fight broke out. And here I am. I'm being locked up for disorderly conduct, resisting arrest. They call reinforcements. Verbal assault, which means I had a filthy mouth. <laughs> resisting arrest. Go down and book me in jail. I got a disorderly conduct in jail. I'm being booked. I'm 20 years of age, and I'm always getting in all these trouble. I can tell these minds. I'm, I'm 16 years of age. I got my license. In the morning, and I wrecked my first car that night drunk. <laughs> I I've I didn't have my in six hours. I'm drunk, driving my brother's car. I got to go to the bright lights in the city. I've never been to the city before. I was racing some car, and I thought I lost and made a right-hand turn. He was inside of me on my blind side. Had my first accident. And I constantly would wreck cars. I left bar, another bar one night. I'm near the bar, and I'm, I'm heading to another bar, and I pass out. I go to an intersection, and I wrap the car around a telephone pole. The rescue squad comes there, cuts me out of the car, takes me to the hospital. I broke my ribs. had a concussion. I get out of the hospital. I go back to seeing the accident. And I stand there and I'm looking at this telephone pole I wrapped my car around. And it dawns on me what the hell happened. It wasn't I was drunk. Look how close that pole is to the side of the road. <laughs> 10,000 cars go by there. Nobody hits it. I hit it. And I rationalize not to drinking. Polished close beside the, the red, and that's how I lived. I was always rationalizing, justifying, and making excuses for my behavior. And the fact is, I did these things because I was a drunk. I did them when I was drinking. I never had problems usually when I wasn't drinking, but unfortunately, I was. I was always drinking, and then because of that, my behavior and the way I lived, and because I got in trouble with the police department and the county, I lived in, and out in the country. I, I had to move out of the country into the city, so I moved to Baltimore City. I'd never lived in a city before in my whole life. I never knew what a row house was. Down here they call them town it townhouses. a bunch of houses. They all look alike in a big city. They all hook together. They all look up. You come home drunk trying to find your house in a strange town. <laughs> I moved in this row house. And then I found it was cheaper to, to move than pay rent. And so I just kept moving. I moved several, eight times a year. One time I moved twice in one week. I rented a house, $17 a week. Nice house, high-class neighborhood, two-story, two bedrooms, a bath upstairs, living room, dining room, kitchen downstairs, full basement, backyard, $17 a week. you imagine where that was? I come home drunk, I see a sign in the window, house for rent, cross the street, $16. I move across the street, save a buck. <laughs> I do stupid things like that. I get my gas and electric cut off, I run an extension cord out my kitchen window, down the wall, in the neighbor's window, plug it in, he plug it in, and I just pay the difference in the gas and electric bill. Keep a lamp refrigerator going. People talk about the French benefits of sobriety. I like the little things. In my house, there's a light bulb in every lamp. When I was drinking, you didn't have light bulbs in every lamp. You had one in the kitchen and one in the bedroom. And you go upstairs to the bedroom, you got to go to the bathroom. You take it out of the bedroom, put it in the bathroom. (laughs) You go to the bathroom, take it out of the bathroom, put it in the bedroom. And to each his own, you can live where you want to live. You can live how you want to live. It's none of my business. But these houses are all roach-infested. And little animals that run around all the time with them tentacles sticking out. Not the little thing you smoke now. I'm talking about the animal roaches. And um, it's, it's, I never lived like that before. And here I'm living in the city, this roach-infested house. And what happens at nighttime while you're sleeping? They get in your clothes and they get in your furniture. And you go to work, you're like this. <laughs> To get under your collar to get in your shoes you open lunch bag one runs out of your bag in front of a bunch of guys I'm standing there talking to a guy one time he's looking at me real funny I'm looking at one he's got his head sticking out of the pocket going like that. It's a hell of a way to have to live and you know see I didn't like that kind of lifestyle and I didn't like where I was living. I didn't like who I was or nothing. Always living in a fantasy world. Always going to be tomorrow. Always going to be tomorrow. I never liked who I was. I never even liked my name. I remember one time I, I was downtown Barmer. To get off the street, they had a, a morning, a movie would open up in the theater. A theater would open in the, in the city like 9 o'clock in the morning. I worked the midnight shift, 12 to 8. And to get off the street, sometimes I would go in this theater. And I always sit there and watch the theater and look on the screen and I see some guy up there that I wish I was just like. I never liked him myself. A.A. says you can be yourself being sober. I remember I was watching one time, I saw this guy, he really looked cool. He always, he was, in the movies, he was always drinking out of a beer can. So next thing you know, I'm always drinking out of a beer can. This guy, he smoked and I didn't smoke. I didn't know that much about smoking. I was too busy drinking. And it'll cool. You always have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with a can of beer. I said, damn, I think I'll be like that. I, I, I forgot. See, I'm driving my car. I'm driving my car one day. I'm going down the highway. I got a can of beer, a steering wheel, and I got a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. And I see the big ash growing on that cigarette. I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to let go of the beer. I don't want to let go of the steering wheel. I'm looking down this ash, so I just go. And I blew the flame right up my nose. Start the hell out and they'll walk around look like six weeks I got a booger hang out of my nose for <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then I try to smoke it again, i passed out and one fell on my chest. Fell on my pants. I said, the hell with smoking. Smoke's going to kill you. <laughs> Great. You know what I mean? So smoke has never been a problem to me. I quit smoking when I got sober. I ain't smoking going 25 years. It just ain't no problem. So anyway, I end up getting into a lot of trouble. I was an action drunk, a fast law, crazy drunk, always out there looking for trouble, looking for some action. If I couldn't find no action, I'd make some action. Always looking for something. Always chasing something. Don't even know what I'm chasing most of the time. I found it. Don't even know what I found, probably. But I'm always out there looking. I'm one of these guys that sit in a bar and they get drinking. Love to sit in a bar with had a lot of blue lights and all. I sat there, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was digging fat. The more I drank, the thinner I got, and the better looking I got. I played him songs on the jukebox, Mr. Lonely. I just knew as a matter of time, I'm going to get discovered. Just living in a fantasy world. Anyway, in 1964, I came off of a bad drunk. I'd been on it for about three days. And I reached a point that I was thinking about committing suicide. And I didn't have the courage to do it. And I'm driving this car, and I want to pull it in front of a tractor and trailer or hit a concrete abutment or something just to get out of this lousy world I'm living in, and my parents would be happy, and and everybody would be be happy, and and, and i just do them all a big favor. And I didn't have the courage. And I don't know what happened, but I was attracted to a small church on the side of the road, and I just felt like at that time I needed to talk to somebody or do something before I really did something stupid. I turned off God a long time ago, and um, I didn't want to hear about God. Uh, I figured there was a guy up there, why is he taking my daughter away from me? Why is he letting all these things happen to me? I don't want to hear God's business. You know, I used to get drunk, and I'd raise my fist at God and, and raise and cuss him and, and, and ramp and rave and just act like a, a maniac. And... Uh, But here I was attracted to this little church, and I went in and I talked to this preacher, this church. He's a neat little preacher. He's sitting there trying to be a preacher. He wasn't a counselor or trying to be a lot of those things, just a little preacher in a little church. And uh, I told him what was going on in my world. And the other thing I did that was unusual that day was I took pride in never crying. You don't show your feelings. I remember I was working with my father one time. He was in construction work, and I went and helped him make some money. And we were putting down some hardwood flooring. And he'd put a nail down, he'd, and I'd lay the boards out, and he'd go nail them down. And and he said, you'll be able to do this one of these days. And um, he's nailed away, and bang, he hit his damn thumb, and it busted his thumb. Bloodshot out of there. He got... Wraps a handkerchief around it, picks up his hammer, starts nailing it. I said, don't that hurt? He said, nah, that don't hurt. So I'm starting to do it now. I'm starting to nail the boards, and I hit my thumb, A damn, that hurt. You know? But you, I was taught, you don't show your feelings. You don't you don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Sissies cry. Little pumps cry. And uh, you don't cry. And here this day when I talked to this preacher, I put my head on a table like this, and I cried openly for the first time in front of another human being that I didn't know what I was going to do. My life is so screwed up. And the guy said, look, you got a lot of problems. He said, your biggest problem seems to be your drinking. And he said, I got a member of my congregation who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe this guy can help you. Now, I didn't know no more about AA than I know about hitting a hockey puck. Okay? So I said, well, okay, whatever you say. So he introduced me to this guy named Larry who took me to my first AA meeting. And that was in 19, I guess like February, March 1964. 23 years of age, not quite 24. And I went in, and I'll tell you what's beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous. We've got a lot of fools in here. And they don't throw none of us out. None of us. And I was just throwing these $3. I used AA, and I got the heat off. I went in, and I was hurting, but it dawned on me after being in here for about a week that you people were pretty damn serious about staying sober. And I wasn't. In fact, I'm wondering, how can I get out of here? I made a commitment to these people. How can I come out of here? And so what I did, I went around, and I told everybody I was in AA. Oh, my mother, she got a little tear in her eye. My wife's happy. The bill collectors are excited. My boss says, gee, you won't come in late and leave early and miss time. I'll get a day's work or a night's work out of you. Everybody's excited. Landlord's excited. He's going to get his rent. Kids are happy. Everybody's happy except for one person. Me. Man, I don't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to be an AA. But I use AA. And I'd go to meetings and I'd say, my name is Stu. I'm an alcoholic. In fact, I'll tell you what, I never used the name of Stu till I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is S-T-E-W-A-R-T, Stewart, and I hated that name. And one of my first meetings, they were sent around an anniversary card, and I learned the streets, you don't sign your name to nothing. I just put down S-T-U. And I've been using that name ever since I've been sober. Never, never used it until I came to AA. My sponsor said, ain't your damn name you got to change, it's your games you got to change. Name ain't going to hurt you, your, your games are going to kill you. So I used AA, and I, I used to leave the meetings, and I'd start associating with drinking people and drinking places, going drinking things, and I'll tell you what happened after I came to AA. I drank. And I remember, I drank, the same thing happens, it always happens, like I got drunk. always drank to get drunk. I loved it, you know, what the speaker talked about earlier about, you know, we don't got to take a drink, we got to take a drunk. I always took a drunk. And I went out and I got drunk and I, I got in trouble. I got in a fight. I got my fingers broken in a fight and I got my head banged in. And I, I get a kick out of these guys and they said they'd never been beat up real bad. You just never got good and drunk. <laughs> never hang around when I was hanging around. My last drink was in a place called a bucket of blood. Nice bar down on Charles Street. And you know what's neat about that when I get out there drinking? I was always going out and sometimes i sometime wear a sports coat or something and i start out nice. Dressed up in a shirt tie on. And I start in a nice place up on the end of Charles Street called Loves. Nice cocktail lounge. And it's so boring in there, you know what I mean? There Ain't much action going on. And I go to, you know, less Gals and, be, and it, it, when you're in Loves, you go in the bathroom. And even in a nice place you're careful about picking up diseases in bathrooms and toilets. So you go and use the bathroom when you get sunny, she so sort of flush it with your foot. You don't want to touch a touch a dirty toilet handle or anything like that, you know what I mean? Well, before the night's over, I'm down on Utah Street, dragging in the Utah house, and they got a toilet in there that looked like it hadn't been cleaned in three years. And I'm down there hugging the thing. <laughs> I'm saying, how far can you come from logs where you're flushing talk toilet with your foot to kiss in a toilet bowl to keep your head off the floor? Just crazy. So I get drunk after, after coming to AA, you know what? Sometimes you go to meetings and you hear people talk about having a slip after coming here and then coming back. Sometimes you hear so much about it, you think you've got to have one to belong here. And I'm telling you, you don't. You never have to drink again unless you want to. Even if you want to, you don't have to. You even think thinking, sometimes you say, well, maybe I need to get a drunk, one last drunk. You don't need to get drunk. You never have to drink again unless you really want to. It gets down how bad you want to be sober. And I remember I came off that drunk and I came back to AA and I told my sponsor how sorry I was I let him down. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, go in the bathroom real fast and look in the mirror, take a good look at Stu and come back and look at Larry. And you see who let who down around here. If so I'm twice your age and I guarantee you I look better than you do tonight, guarantee you I feel better than you do tonight. You take a drink you let yourself down. If you want to stay sober, we'll go to hell for you. If you want to get drunk, you go to hell all by yourself. How bad do you want to stay sober? Anyway, cut a long story short, I said, I don't need AA. I'll go back and I'll do my own thing. And I'll tell you, my own thing damn near killed me. Within six months after, I went back to drinking. I never came back in and out of AA. I just went back to drinking. And within six, seven months, I was into a nut house. I got arrested again. I lost my family. And I just ended up just crazy. It took me almost two years before I came back to al police which is March of 12, 1966. And I've been here every day, ever, ever since, a day at a time since that day. Now, what I made a decision when I came back it's obvious what I did before never worked. So maybe I better approach this a different way. And what I decided, looking back on it now in retrospect, I couldn't see it then, was I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. I got NAA. and not around it. And what I mean by this, so I'll give you an example. Go back to your room tonight, and you pull your bed out in the middle floor if you can do it. And you can walk around that bed all night long. You can touch it, get in there, smell it. Look at it. It don't mean a damn thing till you get in it. And you can come around to AA till you're blue in the face, but it don't mean nothing to you get in AA. I, I looked around. And I saw guys and gals staying sober, and I saw guys and gals who weren't staying sober. I saw people that were happy, and I saw people who weren't happy. And I hooked myself to a, to the, to a tale of a sober star. I hooked myself up with a guy who had what I wanted. I got me a sponsor, NAA. I'm not sitting back on a throne somewheres, but NAA. And my sponsor spoon-fed me Alcoholics Anonymous. I joined it. I joined a group. I said, put my name on a book, put it down there as my sobriety date. My home group today is called the Zaruna Park Early Birds Group. And we, we, we meet on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 10 a.m. in the morning not a very big group compared to this. We only have maybe 75 to 100 people there. But it's the best group in Apple economics for me. I love it. It's a lot of enthusiasm there. One of the reasons I'm belonging that group is a lot of enthusiasm. I love being sober. If you've been sober for a while, unless you're going through a tremendous crisis right now in your life, and that thing's happening in sobriety, but there ain't no big crisis going on in your life tonight, and you're not happy. Somewhere you missed something. AA is not an endurance contest. It's not a place where you just come in and bite the bullet. It ain't a place where we just come in and hang in there. We should just hang in bars. I want to be doing more in AA than just hang in there. I want to be sober. I want to have a lot of fun. It's called joy of good living. You can have a lot of fun being sober. And I hooked up myself with sober people. And it's so like monkey see, monkey do. I'll tell you what's neat about sponsorship, working with new people. I was in AA one week. I was at a meeting. And a new man walked through the door. My sponsor said, go talk to the new man. I said, you've got to be crazy. I said, you go talk to him. You've got two years. I've got seven days. He said, he don't have seven days. Tell him about your seven days. He taught me at the beginning, you want to keep it, give it away. doesn't say the guy's got to accept it, but you've got to give it. And you just give it. So I started doing this. I used to shake a lot when I got sober. Everybody else ever shook a lot. We got to have a cup of coffee, keep them spilling on us. I used to shake a lot. I told my sponsor, maybe I could just smoke a little dope or something like that. to Calm me down a little bit. You know what I mean? Just to stop something that's shaking. He said, no, 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 no. We're talking about total accidents. No wacky weed, no nothing, okay? He said, look, let me let me, let me be honest with you. He said, Did you ever hear anybody die and they put on death certificates and they shook to death? Okay. He said, shaking ain't going to kill you. Damn wacky weed going to do as well, but that shaking won't. You start thinking about taking a drink and think about your last shaking. Is that important? Okay. Anyway, I still had this thing about being out there no matter how long you're sober. I like my back against the wall. Anyway, um, anyway, he said, shaking won't kill you. And so I started going to meetings. Now, no one told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. They said, go to meetings until we tell you don't go to meetings. They said, meeting makers make it. Go to meetings. People that don't go to meetings don't hear what happens to people that don't go to meetings. You've got to go to meetings. <laughs> Three years later, they said you can cut back on your meetings. <laughs> Meanwhile, a lot of guys and gals were saying to me in the beginning, you're stupid to you go to all those meetings. You don't have to go to all those meetings. Stay home and watch The Colts are playing Monday night on television. We had the Colts in before they went to Indianapolis. And Johnny Nice was a big star back in those days. I told my sponsors, I not think I'll stay home Monday night and watch a Colt game. He said, good. He said, 3 o'clock in the morning, you want to take a drink? Call Johnny Nice. Don't call me. <laughs> I said, I'll see you at the meeting. I lost my license when I was drinking. They repossessed my car. I was working in the factory. I stayed sober one year. got my license back. Had to go down in front of the Medical Advisory Board at the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, get my license back. Talking a bunch in front of a bunch of psychiatrists and doctors, explaining to them why I think I'm an alcoholic, trying to get my license back. Paid high risk insurance for three years, and I bought an old GI taxi cab that was it wasn't good enough to to carry people around the city, and they took it off the streets. And I bought it for fifty dollars, and I took the dome off the top. And where the wires went through, the hole there, I put some tape over the hole. And it was a red, white, and blue taxi cab. GI Veterans Taxi Cab. I put some spray paint over the door to cover up the GI taxicab sign. And I used that for going to meetings for a long time. I remember one time I took my th- I still look like a taxi cab, but I took my daughter one time downtown. And we were going down shopping. And people were all going like this. <laughs> my daughter said, God, Dad, everybody in town knows you. I said, yeah. But... but but, but I, would, I would have drove nothing like that when I was drinking. When I got sober, I'd take anything. you got to get a little humble if you want to get sober. So I got me a sponsor, joined AA, started going to meetings. And then the other thing that happened after I was sober for a while, a bunch of guys in 1966, if Bill Wilson's going to, he has his anniversary in the fall, and we're all going to go to his anniversary in New York. I said, who the hell is Bill Wilson. I said, well, he's just the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's the guy that God uses as an instrument to help get this program started, to save your life. And before the old man dies, the least you could do is go up there and shake his hand and thank him. I said, you got to be kidding. They said, no. So here we go. Come along in the fall, October. Five of us get in the car. We we'll go to New York. Meet Bill Wilson, Lois. We shake his hand, and I shook his hand. I didn't realize what I was doing. I just did it. The questions. I just did it. I can, came to the conclusion. I asked all the questions before and I never got sober. Just do it. Friend of mine said, you don't have to smile when you pay your gas mercury bill. Just pay it. See? And just do what you're supposed to do in AA. And I went there and I met Bill Wilson, shook his hand, thanked him for letting God use him as an instrument to find the program that saved my life because that's what this program is It saved my life. And all he said was pass it on. We've been given a gift. You want to keep it? Pass it on. And so I came back, I met some guys up there from Boston. And this is in October 1966. There were very few young people around AA back in 1966. They would come in on with very few them would stay. And here I was 25 years of age. And um, I met these guys, they said, how's your young people's group one? I said, we don't have one. They said, go back and start one. And so I went back and with two other guys we started, the under 35 group, is the young people's group in Baltimore City, and, and the group would be 24 years of age this October. And what happened, it got me a chance to get involved and get active. And then this next thing you know, all these old drunks, like me now, they would bring these young drunks to me. And I started working with a bunch of young drunks. And they would always say, well, where's all the other young drunks at around here? All I see is a bunch of old drunks around here, 50, 60, 70 years old. Where are the young ones? I said, they're in Dundalk, Maryland. We'll go to Dundalk Tuesday night. And I'll show you some young guys. There weren't no young guys in Dundalk. I wasn't lying. I was just romance into truth, just a little bit. So we go to Dundalk. They say, "Where are they at?" I said, "They're in Annapolis." The Annapolis Friday night meeting. We'll go to Annapolis Friday night. I got and all we just trying to do is buy them some time. Just show them that they could hang in here for a while. Then there'll be two of us young guys and three of us young guys and five of us young. It would it would just it would take time. I just try and buy them some time. Well, I'll tell you what's fascinating about Alcoholics Anonymous. 24 years have gone by. I work with a lot of older drunks now. I work with guys. Sometimes I've I got a guy who came to his first meeting. He's 71. He's over six years now. Another guy who's in his 60s. I'm taking these old guys to meetings. You know what they're saying? Where the hell are all the old people at? <laughs> all I see is young people. I said they're in Dunco. All we're trying to do is buy a little time. Romance the truth a little bit there. We're not lying to them. So it's exciting. So I started working with a lot of young guys. And what happened was my sponsor would tell me things like, easy does it. First things first. Live and let live. Learn to mind your own business. I start working with these new guys. They say, I say, well, easy does He said, what's that mean? I said, oh, God, now I've got to learn what is all about. Right? Now I found out there's a difference between the program and the fellowship. And this is the fellowship right here. It's one drunk's love for another. It's one drunk trying to help another drunk. We can do together what you and I couldn't do alone. We can get sober when you stay sober. Yeah, it is easy when it's easy, but we can stay sober during the tough times too, man. That's a real tester. And so I started I, I started getting involved. I started going to meetings. And I was working a lot of young drunks. I guarantee you by my third anniversary in Alcoholics anonymous. I must have sponsored at least 100 young guys in AA. Unfortunately, none of them was sober. I was the only one sober. And I came to the conclusion I know why they weren't staying sober. I was trying to get them sober through the grace of God, Instead of letting them get sober through the grace of God. I'm going to get these sober. You're going to work on our program. We're all sober through the grace of God. Through the grace of God. But I joined AA, I got active, I got involved. I found out that this is the fellowship here. But we always can't be with this fellowship. Sometimes you're going to be out there all by yourself. And when you're out there by yourself, you're going to need more than you can at the fellowship, you're going to need a program. What's the program? The talk suggested steps. friend of mine said, hey, I asked my father, I said, when should I start working these steps? He said, when do you want to start getting well? AA's more than just a don't drink program. Not drinking is the most important thing you're ever going to do in our Anonymous. I love that sign we have in my group, too. If your tail falls off, pick it up and bring it to a meeting, we'll screw it back on you. Don't drink. I don't care what happens. Don't drink. Don't drink. Drink is not a part of the solution. Don't drink. Go to these meetings. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Someone said one night meeting, Says, anybody got any questions? I do. They said, what's your question? I said, why me? <laughs> I don't want to be an alcoholic. I'd rather be a firefighter, a lawyer, a doctor, any damn thing but an alcoholic. Why me? Why not one of my brothers and sisters? I don't want to be an alcoholic. Why me? Well, I did that at a small discussion meeting. They banged my tail from one end of the table back to the other end. And they came back and they said, well, why not you? What's the great about you? You can't be an alcoholic. And now we've had to pay, you know, some, some other... Seekers here this weekend talked about cancer and all. There's a man that meeting his name is Jay Miller. And Jay had a kind of cancer that was it wasn't curable. His face was distorted. He had gone through a lot of radiation treatment, a lot of cobalt treatment, and it had gone too far and there was nothing they could do about it. And all this had been removed, scarred. He said, young man, let me tell you something. He said, You see that? He said, that's called cancer. He said, and there's all forms of cancer that can be arrested, that can be treated, and you can have a long, very, very, very productive life. He said, I've got the kind, it's too late. i got a disease I can't do a damn thing about. You've got a disease, all you got to do is stop drinking and start living. Thank God if you've got to have an, an illness or a disease, it's called alcoholism. And there's a place that you can go to and your life's ahead of you. I used to go to meet sometime and I'd set the meetings and I was 25 and I'd hear these old guys talking. And they start going down the table and pretty soon one guy said, I drank a fifth a day. Next guy said, I drank a fifth and a half. Find this gal, say, I drank two fifths a day. I said, do I hear three fifths? Do I hear three and a half? It's almost like it's a, it's a contest on how much you drink. It ain't how much you drink. It's what it does to you. I was at meeting one night and heard a guy say, it's the first drink that got me drunk. I hate my sponsor. I said, he must be a sissy. I mean, how do you get drunk on one drink? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, Ed, it took me 17 drinks, three six-packs or two-fifths. I never got drunk on one drink in my life. That's how I was drinking out of a gallon damn glass. And that guy, he's a sissy and doesn't belong here. How he got drunk on one drink, I'll never know. Ed said, I'll explain to you after the meeting. That's what sponsors are for. They explain things to you after the meeting. So we go home. We stop at his house. We walk back, and he had a wood shop in the back of his house. And we go back there and we look in the wood shop and he picked up this big hand saw, big buzz saw, and it cuts, cuts wood. He, he turned it, the big saw on, used for ripping wood, had a lot of sharp teeth on it. He said, feel that teeth. I said, man, sharp. He said, Herm. Turned that thing on, it's going around a million miles an hour. He said, gonna tell you something, if you bend over and I turn that thing on and ram you in your rear end, you're going to figure out what tooth did the most damage. Okay. He said, it ain't the 17th tooth, tooth or the third tooth or whatever. He said, it's the first one. If you don't start drinking, you ain't got to stop drinking. You don't get in the jug. You ain't got to wonder how to get out of the jug. And then I got thinking. I went to a one night. The guy said, when do you have to do this one day at a time? And then he's talking about his anniversary next month. He said, do it one day at a time. And I'm thinking, one day at a time? I don't know about you guys. I'm 25. Suppose I to be 75 years old. 50 years without a drink. How the hell am I going to stay sober 50 years? I came in March. You're not worried about Memorial Day. I'm worried about the Fourth of July and Labor Day and Christmas and New Year's. They said, we'll tell you the secret on how to stay sober during those holidays. The secret is, don't drink. That's the secret. Don't drink. They said, you don't have to stay sober 50 years. You just have to do it today. Just do it today. And they kept it very simple. They kept it very simple. You don't take the first drink a day. You keep it very simple. The other thing I heard is very helpful to me, they said, you're going to get as well as your secrets that you keep. you got to get rid of your secrets. We all have secrets. How bad do you want to stay sober? What lengths are you want to go to? What price do you want to go to? I said, what's it going to take for me to get sober? They said, everything you've and then some. It's easy when it's easy. And I know not drink is the most important, but that is more than just don't drink. You're gonna stay sober just for a while with some activities around here, but I tell you what, when crap hits the fan, you gotta deal with some tough things out there, you're gonna find out what you got going for you. And so I just started staying sober, going to meetings, and my whole life started changing. I got sober, I went back to night school, I finished up my education, my high school education. My parents were uh, my father took pride in all these kids getting at least a high school education or college education. And I never liked my father until I got sober in our college nomines. I'm the kind of kid that I go somewhere with my father and my father, someone says, gee, you got a big son. He's like, I got one bigger than him home. I go somewhere and they say, gee, he's a pretty smart boy. My, my, my daughter's smarter than he is. I, I, I had a hard time dealing with that. And I just had this attitude with my parents. I was sober in AA for a while. I told my sponsor, I said, you know what, my father, my mother has never once told me they love me. He said, when's the last time you told them? He said, let it begin with you. You go tell them. I'll tell you what happens now over these years. I meet my parents and they, they, we end up never in a conversation or a letter or anything that we don't say I love you. And it just started by saying I love you. And it just takes time. I called my mother up. I was so excited last time. I, that, the second time I got in AA, I remember the first time I told everybody that I, I was um, getting sober, that uh, I let them all down. So this time I think I'm going to keep it real low keyed. And I remember I went back and I finally got sober. I was sober for a while and I called my mother up and said, mom, I'm back in AA and I think it's for real this time. And and she said, you don't know how much your father and I prayed for you. There's a lot of people praying for you. So my life started changing. I found myself, you know, going to work. And that's it. You know, you can change yourself. You know, I I think recovery is an inside job, but it starts on the outside by cleaning up. I started taking a bath every day. A little simple thing. I used to take a fast bath. Take a face rag and hit here again your creases, your crotch, your underarms, your, your teeth. And just don't have tight time to take a bath. you got to get out there and get where the action is. Start taking a bath, start brushing your teeth, combing your hair. I used to meet to all me, the whole time. I was, I, I, quit, I was always squinching. My sponsor what the hell is the matter? I said, I can't see. He said, get some glasses. I said, I, look, I think I look better without them. He said, you ain't in no damn beauty contest. You're in here to be sober. I used to go to meetings sometime, and I told Ed, I was going to meetings, I said, these people won't shake my hand. He said, get it out of your pocket. Put it out there. Sponsors give you the most simplest answer for the most complicated questions. He soon said in the alcoholics he said, get into the steps. The steps is where the recovery starts at. The first three steps is dealing with getting right with you and God. The next four steps is your inventory and defects of character, shortcomings, you're dealing with yourself. Get right with you and God. He said, then you get into your men's stuff and you get right with your fellow men. Then you sort of maintenance toward the last three, but using all of them through that that process. Anytime I say that I've gone through a difficult time in my recovery, I remember I went back and told my sponsor, I was having a lot of marriage problems. I said, maybe I should take a fourth and fifth step about this problem. He said, no, go back to the first step. He said, you're working a half-step program. You're sitting here meeting your parallel for alcohol, period. He said, your life's completely unmanageable. The second step you think is crazy. Where's God's will in this thing? God's now all of a sudden He's turned out to you see your steering wheel now is a spare tar. You better take a good look at yourself then. Let's talk about it. It's obvious that your defective character you sure, are really running crazy, and you've hurt some people and you owe some amends. You can take those steps and walk through it through any kind of a problem in your life. If you're having a problem, it says somewhere the answer's in the steps. Go to the steps. And we got involved in step meetings. My whole life started changing. We got about 10 minutes? <laughs> anyway, um, my whole life started changing. I remember one time I was uh, fairly new in AA and I uh, was sober almost a year and they wanted to do a show about young people in AA. It was on a show called Promote Goodwill and they asked me to be on this TV show. And they take a, 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 a light bulb, one the, of the lights out, of a color camera and it all it shows is a figure and you use a different name. Because back then in the 60s, there was still stigmatism and alcoholism and I had a son who was like nine years of age, and uh, I was concerned about him and living the neighborhood we are living in and what would happen. And so they said, would you do this, and, and we won't use your real name. So I went on this TV show with two other young people, and we did a thing on young people in AA, and we did this to protect our anonymity, AA, and our, our kids, and our families, and um uh, I didn't know about it, but meanwhile, my son's home there. He me on television. He's running up and down the streets yelling there, my father's on television. My father's on television, you know? he goes to a story. He writes all AA. He's of like girls' names on his book. He write AA all his book. My whole life changed. My life changed. I got active. I got involved. I joined our anonymous. I've stayed active. I've never ran away from AA. When I've gone through difficult times, I ran to AA. I would increase my meetings. And um, I've had to deal with a lot of setbacks since I've been sober. I've gone through career changes. I was still about fourteen years in AA and went through a career change and decided I, I no longer wanted to work on the waterfront the factories and I some people kept saying you ought to get into sales, so I was running around with a guy who was a real estate agent and a broker and he said, Why don't you try real estate? Well, you know, let's face it, ten years ago. The market was terrible. Everybody's getting out of real estate and I got in it. A friend of mine said, You're a bramble goose. I said, What's a bramble goose? Did you ever see in a fall, a big flock of geese are all hitting south in a big V. They're all, there's one damn dumb goose going north. <laughs> and then in and then the, the spring, they're all going north, and one dumb going south. He said, that's, he said, everybody got out of real estate, and you got in it. I thought I could just time it perfect, and I had enough money to carry me, that when the market broke, I was going to make a ton of money. Unfortunately, I went broke. So I've been broke. I was 14 years sober, and I've got to go do a meeting on the other side of Baltimore City. I don't have a dollar to go through the tunnel. I go shopping, I look down there, we see some steaks. I say, I'll get you next month, go buy some liver. Or we'll get some chicken. I know how it is to be broke and be sober now, colleagues. Bad business decisions. I had some health problems since I've been sober. About nine years ago, they thought I had cancer. I had a big lump in my chest. I was listening to you talk about breast cancer and I went to a doctor and I had a big lump was coming up in my chest area and they said, we think you've got cancer. We're 99% sure of it, and we're going to have to operate it when you put you in a hospital right away. I said, what is it? He said, breast I said, Men don't get breast cancer. I want John Wayne cancer. You know what I mean? I mean, how am I going to go to tell people I get breast cancer? You know what I mean? It's back that time also. We had a little politician in Baltimore City who got picked up for Homosexuality Act, and the first thing he yelled was, I was in a blackout. I'm an alcoholic. I go to AA. And, and they put it in the newspaper. I go to work and everybody says, and then some guy writes an article about alcoholics have homosexual tendencies sometimes. Guys at work read that say, "Hey, I, I see the alcoholics have homosexual tendencies sometimes." I said, "Yes, they do, you know." <laughs> if you fight them, you're gonna lose. I guarantee you. So anyway, um, I end up. They think, I, and I, I got to get a mammogram. That's tough to do with a chest, you know. I mean, a guy, and uh, I went through all these things, and. Um, I end up um, going to hospital, and um, the support that you get in for it's Anonymous was unbelievable. I mean, they thought maybe the mayor of the city was in that hospital room. I mean, there was folks coming and going, help we had our own coffee pot in there. I chaired an AA meeting the night before my operation. And I never once prayed I didn't have cancer. I asked God, just give me the grace to accept whatever it is. If it's your will that I have cancer, then so be it. I should have died a long time ago, man. I've seen things I came out of It's unbelievable. Accidents and different things. I said, just give me the grace to accept whatever it is. The doctor says, I'll tell you what, when you wake up in the recovery room, he said, if you can lift your arm up, it wasn't, it wasn't malignant. If you, can, if you can't, then we've had to go take lymph nodes out and everything else. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's for you, particularly males, because you don't have a breast area for it to grow in. It grows internally and gets through your ribs. We're going to have to take out some ribs. And you probably notice you may have got three or five years left. And I went in with that. Talked to my sponsor about it. Took a little fist step, cleaned up. The day of the operation, a lot of the guys I sponsor, my sponsor, some other friends were there. The room was full of people. Did the operation, came out of it. Doctor walked out and he said, I can't believe it. He said, the last thing we want to do is cut on him. I can't believe that that thing was not malignant. We were, we were sure that that thing was malignant, wasn't it? One of the guys I sponsored, you kidding me? He's a man. Power of prayer, that's what it was, doc. Power of prayer. We were all praying. doctor said, I don't know about that. He said, bull crap. He said, if you got us two more days away, we were praying, you wouldn't even have a cut on him. <laughs> power of prayer. Came out of the hospital. Nancy and I was going through a lot of marital problems at that time. We are going to try a geographical cure for our marriage. Sold our home. We are going to go to California. I visited out there a couple of times. I had a chance to travel out there a couple of times. If we're going to go out there. Maybe things would be better for us out there. Sold our house. Middle of the night my my gallbladder blows out. I, I wake up. I'm all cuffed up. I take my gun. I'm a heart attack. Go to the hospital and my and I evidently had a big stone in my gallbladder and it broke loose and it clogged up the opening of the gallbladder. Just sitting there pumping. Nothing going on put me in house I'll take my ball out and I get thinking, you know what? Maybe I maybe I'm not supposed to go to California. Maybe I should have run away from this thing, I'm supposed to work my way through this thing. And that's what I did, stay there. And I ran to AA. Had a lot of things going like that. Career changes. I went into from there, I left there and I went into insurance sales. Alcoholics is fascinating. I was listening to your story you're talking about this morning. You can stand here and tell story after story. I, I went to um I retreat. I, I, I started you know, selling insurance, came with some door-to-door, a little debit company, worked up to Vincent. Within four years I'm an insurance agency, I had a partner with me, I want to buy my partner out. I say the alcoholics are crazy, when they want something, they go get it, okay? I built this agency up and I had a partner and I couldn't get along with him, I couldn't stand him. And I didn't know what to do about it, and I prayed about it. I went to a meeting one day and we talked about it, I said, i got to get out of this partnership because this guy's driving me crazy. And I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, I'm, I'm going to buy him out or he's going to buy me out. Something's going to happen, but I can't no longer live like this. I was sharing openly at a group what's happening. A guy walked up to me, after me, he said, how much money do you need to buy him out? I said, I don't know. He said, can you use 10 grand? I said, shh, can I use 10 grand? He said, yeah, I'm Vice President of the Bank because I'm betting on AA. Bought the guy out the next day or within a couple of days and uh built that agency up. And from there, I ended up going into marketing. And, and from there now, what happened, I ended up... Uh, I still do some marketing but I ended up um, we learn from everybody. I ended up sponsoring a guy in AA. He said, What are you doing for fun? I said, What do you mean? He said, all I see you do is go to work and go to AA. You ain't playing golf, you ain't doing nothing. What are you doing for fun? I said, nothing. He said I said, What do you do for a living? He said, I buy and sell old postcards, these penny postcards. I said, You gotta be kidding me. He says, No. He says, You get the thrill to... he said, You're the kind of guy like me to get a thrill to chase. No matter what you look, looking, it's like the fox and the hound. Once the fox catches, the hound catches the fox, where do you go from there? I've always got the feel of either chasing a woman, a commission, a position, or something, and then when I catch it, I don't, I don't know where to go from there. I'm looking for a new chase. I'm always looking, chasing something, and most of the time I don't know what I'm chasing. And when I find it, I'm not satisfied. So he said, you know, you need, you need to get into something. So I found myself going with him, and I went out, and I started getting involved with little penny postcards. You go in the little antique shop and you pick them up and you look at the picture and if it relates to something you buy it. And, and I just started collecting. This thing and you know I got 36,000 postcards. <laughs> We're positive. And so I just started taking a couple to a show and he has some shows. I went to first sell them. And the next thing I know I'm buying and selling postcards and I'm collecting postcards. And I, get to, I go out and I chase postcards now. Little certain cards I look for. And it can be fair, financially rewarding. It can be a lot of fun. There's a lot of history. The excitement is I find one, I say, oh, man, there's one, wow. Get a little high, then you go look for another one. You don't get shot at, you don't get, you know, nothing bad happens to you. You don't have to worry about your reputation. And so I get excited about it. I've been doing it for a year. I'm in town and God, uh, Donald and, and, uh, and Michael took me out today. We had a break and went out looking found some postcards in the antique shops and take some back with me. And I'm always collecting these things. I love it, And um, it's a lot of fun. And I don't know where that's going to take me. I didn't, I didn't look for that, but it just happens to come along. I've gone through a lot of other changes. A year and a half ago, well, I mean, three and a half years ago, Nathan and I decided to buy a house. We still had marriage problems from 10 years ago. We are trying to work our way through it. We decided to go buy a new house. And there's a little development where I live in today called Dorona Park. And uh, I never liked to live in, I, I used to hate that neighborhood. It was old Dorona Park, O-L-D-E, old Dorona Park. It's where the money people were. Now, I'm not a money guy, I'm just a regular guy. But I had a real estate license too that I kept up and I found a deal on my house and there and I bought it. I never thought I'd live in a neighborhood like this. I mean when I was a kid I used to go in there and beat up the little rich kids. We used to wear jeans, leather jackets, DA haircuts. And they wore little white buck shoes and saddle shoes and buckles on the back of their pants and little button down collars and their parents drove fancy cars and hell I'm living in that neighborhood now. We were in there one night, only in there a couple of weeks, and said, let's go down to a restaurant down here and have a nice little meal, a little, get a little bite to eat. And we're sitting in this restaurant, we're eating dinner, and I'm looking around. I started laughing, she said, what's the so point?" I said, how did I robbed this place one time? Yeah, you know? <laughs> hey, hey, I'm living in this neighborhood now. I robbed this place. We stopped and got some newspaper at the drugstore, and I robbed that when I was out there drinking. I used to take things that didn't belong to me all the time. And, it, I mean, it keeps you from spending money. And... Um, <laughs> And so I was just a wild, crazy person. So anyway, we were having a lot of problems and we decided that it wasn't working out. Let's, we, we separated three or four more times. So let's, we went ahead and got ourselves a lawyer, got a legal separation. That's a tough thing to go, with, go to when you're sober 20-some years in AA, married 20-some years. You're trying and you feel guilty because so what kind of a par example is this to new people? They say, you mean I stay sober 20-some years and you're married 20-some years and you go through, is this what I'm looking forward to? No, it doesn't have to happen to you. It's just like you're going to see people who are out here and get drunk. That doesn't mean you have to go out and get drunk. What it means and why I'm sharing it, it's a part of my story. I'm not excited about it. It's very painful to go through that. You find yourself going through a lot of rejection. You find out who your true friends are. You go through a lot of different feelings, and emotions. It's a very painful thing to go through. But I'll tell you what, we both went through it we and both went fine. And we went ahead and got the divorce. We had a lawyer who wrote us up a two-year volunteer separation. We had counseling. We did everything we could. It never worked out. It wasn't a shock to our friends, it shocked to some people, but not to our friends. And a lot of people don't know how to react to things like that when it happens. It's happening to other people, happening everywhere. It happens outside of the AA, it's gonna happen in here. Not everybody's gonna stay sober in here. But it's a part of my story. It might have one person's friend tonight. I stayed sober through that. I backed off. I never went out and spoke at an AA meeting or convention or anything for two years almost. I dove into AA, I dove into general service, I started working with drunks. I got very involved in AA, increased my meetings and bought some time. So my closest friends been married 30-some years. I got a friend of mine I'm on the board of trustees now' Blackstone. He him and his wife are in the program, Al 9 and AA, married 57 years. doesn't mean it's going to happen to everybody, but it happens every now and then to some of us. And I thought I was a bad person because it happened to me. I'm a bad person, and what I had to learn to do is sit down and look at it and, and cut my life up into like a piece of pie. Just because you got problems in one area of your life doesn't mean you're a bad person all over. Girl of my home group says, "You know what? I'm not perfect, but you know what? There's parts of me that are excellent." Okay. Just because you got a problem in your life in one area doesn't mean you're a total bad person. It just means you got a part of the area that needs to be straightened out and to the great God, in time, it's going to straighten out. And so we separated. She said, "You know, we we, we split everything 50 50 I got the old outside of the house, she got the inside of the house. Okay? The old theory, she said, we'll throw all the furniture up with stays, you keep what comes down I get. Okay? So she got all the furniture? Ends up, two, almost two and a half years later, we finalized the divorce, we ended up having dinner one night, and we decided that, um, she said the house is too big, it's, it's an older house, I, I don't think I can take care of it, she got a nice job, she's got herself a, a nice guy, she's dating, and she said, um, I want to buy a townhouse smaller house. I bought her out. I, th- I, th- I told a friend of mine, I said, I-, I guess I can go ahead and work out something and maybe get myself an equity loan. I needed about $35,000. And I said, maybe I get an equity loan and, and um, equity loan and, and buy her out. And he said, hell, he said, I'll lend you the money, you buy her out. Put some stability in, like, drop that anchor, don't just float around. And what he did, I bought her out and moved back in my house. I'm back in here. I've got a bunch of old gals in the antique shops looking for some furniture for me to put in there. Life's exciting. I've never gone through any difficult time that I haven't came out of a better person once you work your way through it. The hardest thing I ever had to do was get out of that marriage. I could tell other people what to do in theirs, but I couldn't tell myself what to do. I didn't have the courage. And we just get postponed, postponed until so eventually it, it, it dissolved. And so I've lived a brand new life. And to me, it's exciting, it's a lot of fun. I'll be 50 years of age in nine, eight days, three hours, 14 minutes. I'll be 50 years old. And it's nifty to be 50, I think. It's no big deal to me. Now, being 40 was a really son of a gun. But being 50 is no big deal to me. It's a lot of fun. Age is state in mind. You're as old as you think you are. I got guys 35 can't keep up with me. I got guys 55 run over me. It's all up here. So it's a lot of fun being sober, it's a lot of fun coming here. I never take, I'm going to wrap it up with this, I never take coming to a place like this for granted. I never take, having an opportunity to come here and share for granted. It's a privilege, it's an honor to be able to be asked to come all the way across the United States over to Nebraska and share at your meeting. I never lived like this before in my whole, I never traveled like this in my entire life. You say, come on, we'll we'll send you a plane ticket, come on over and we'll put you up in a motel room, we'll feed you and just share with our meetings. That's an opportunity a lot of drunks never get a chance to have an alcoholic non I don't take that for granted. I go in my room, there's a nice fruit basket there. Reminds me back in my area we talk about in the wintertime. People in my area, they take these alcoholic they they take they take a regular fruitcake and they put a lot of brandy and whiskey and stuff in this fruitcake. And during the holidays they have what's called an alcoholic fruitcake. If you don't all get eaten during the holidays, after the holidays over, is any way you could take all that brandy and gin and booze out of that fruitcake, you're right back down having the fruitcake. And that's all I was before I ever started drinking. I was a fruitcake. Put booze in me, I became an alcoholic fruitcake. Came to AA, took the booze out of me, now I'm stuck with a fruitcake. Okay? <laughs> AA said, just stay here and work on a damn fruitcake. day at a time. You don't have to be perfect. I never committed a sin too big I couldn't forgive me for. I've had to learn how to forgive myself by my behaviors before I came to alcoholics, and by my behavior after I came to alcoholics Anonymous. And learn how to forgive yourself, learn how to love yourself. And so coming here has been fantastic. I don't take it for granted. I think it was neat. I got to pick up at the airport. Someone went to time out of the day to come pick me up and bring me here. Vaughn did that. Got a chance to meet him and share with him. Came here, met some nice figures. You know what's neat about sharing in a conference like this with this kind of dude that you can't lose? I'll tell you something. If, you ain't bought this, if this conference is sending a message out to you out there, with the speakers coming up here. If you ain't bought it before I came up here, you ain't gonna buy it from me. You can't louse it up. I'm on a program with some really neat people that they you just some very good sincere sharing. See, it's easy staying sober at these conferences. It's easy to stay sober at NAA, but you can't always stay here. You can't. This is like a mountaintop experience, but we can't stay on top of the mountain forever. We gotta go back down the valley. It's easy mm-hmm. staying stay sober in here. No one usually offers me a drink of booze at a meeting, Okay. The problem is out there. How do you live out there? You take out there and live out there what you learn in here. And so it's Mike. Nice. When I was drinking, I couldn't get out of Baltimore City. I get served in this being answered to different places. And it's unbelievable they a drunk like me can come from there to here. I've already just been sharing with some people this week, and they touched me and shared some, some things with me. I've picked up some things in. You like what the outline figure I didn't, I can learn from anybody. You ever notice God gave us two ears and one mouth? We should listen twice as much as we talk. Otherwise we have two we'd have two mouths and one damn ear. I try to listen. I listen and learn. That's been exciting for me. It's been an adventure. I I, I just I never thought it could happen to me. I thank God about it. Before I ever come to share with me, I just pray that say, God, give me the word to say. Tonight I'll thank him. There's three talks in AA. When you get a chance to go speak somewhere. There's a, there, there's a talk you plan on giving when you're sitting down here and before you get up here, there's a talk you plan on giving when you stand up here. There's a, the one you give when you stand up here. And there's the one you wish you would have given when you sit back down. <laughs> the hardest thing you ever have to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is to show up. Show up and grow up and shut up. And I want to thank you for allowing me to just come here and share this time with you. And hope someday if you come to my way, I can treat you as half as good as you treated me. You're going to be treated fantastic. God bless you.